and uh, we'll start in chapter 14. I've been, <clears throat> been reading in Mark lately, <clears throat> and uh, getting towards the end of the, this gospel, and came to the section where Jesus prays in Gethsemane. And it is such an incredible portion of Scripture. But there was one phrase that stood out to me and uh, really made me think. And so I'm just going to share some of the thoughts that I thought as I thought about this. (laughs) Uh, It's here in this prayer that, that Jesus prays in the garden. We'll just uh, start with verse 35 now. He went a little beyond them, that is, the disciples that he had with him, and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by, the hour being this coming crucifixion. And he was saying, and this is a prayer, Abba, Father, All things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. And the phrase that caught my attention is this phrase, all things are possible for thee. Because as I've been reading through Mark, I'd noticed that in several other places, different contexts. If you turn back to Mark chapter... Nine. This is a little bit different, but uh, uh, still the, the phrase came to mind. Jesus is dealing with the situation here of a of a young boy who was possessed by a spirit, and his disciples had tried to deal with it and they couldn't. And uh, the father brings this child to, to Jesus and explains the situation. And uh, the the father says, But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. All things are possible. And uh, this is uh, that all things are possible to thee, to God, back in Mark 14. And here it says all things are possible to those who would believe in God, trust in God. And then in Mark ten twenty seven, <clears throat> this is the situation where this rich young ruler has come to Christ and talked with him and uh, he went away grieved wasn't willing to follow Christ in relationship to what the Lord taught him. And uh, Jesus said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Just in general, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? 
And looking upon them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So I was trying to fit these verses together, you see, and think about this phrase, all things are possible. I mean, we often hear this expression, nothing's impossible for God. And it is a biblical expression, just even that phrase right there. In another gospel, we uh, find that exact phrase. It was when the angel Gabriel came to the Virgin Mary to tell her she was going to have a child, and also that her relative Elizabeth was going to conceive a son in her, in her old age. And answering her question as to how these things could possibly be, the angel says, nothing is impossible with God. So, that's what I would like us to think about here tonight. What exactly does this mean? Especially in the light of the fact that the Bible says that there are some things that are impossible for God. That should have woke you up if you were (laughs) drowsy. The Bible says there are some things that are impossible for God. So it seems like almost like a contradiction. contradiction. Nothing is impossible for God, and yet some things are impossible for God. Uh, What does this mean, then? Nothing is impossible with God. Well... It means that God cannot fail to accomplish all he sets out to do. God is not limited by any lack of power to do anything that his power might accomplish. But there are some things that God can't do. It's not because he's unable to do them because of a lack of power. It's because of who he is in his nature. Why don't we pray here once more and ask God to help us understand this. Father, we ask in mercy that you would help us now to understand these things that are not easy to understand. And we ask for wisdom from heaven. We ask for your help. I ask for your help. Have mercy upon the speaker and the hearers that we might be profited from being here this evening. By thy spirit, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seems that the things, as I was thinking through this and reading about it, it seems that things that are impossible for God fall into two categories. First of all, those things that are against his own nature. And secondly, behavior that is impossible by definition. That would be logical contradictions. For instance, God cannot create a square circle or a two-sided triangle. Just have to think about that a little bit. He can't make something exist and not exist at the same time and in the same sense. See, those are logical contradictions. He cannot do truly illogical things. Truly illogical things. I say truly illogical because some things may seem illogical to us because of our finite thinking abilities that are not truly illogical. And they're not illogical to the one who is the basis of all logic and the basis of all reason. 
logic, and reason are grounded in God's nature. God cannot be illogical or unreasonable, but we often are. And so sometimes the things that we would say are illogical aren't really. It's just that we can't comprehend how God can do something. Um, I say we're often illogical and unreasonable and even foolish. And I would give an example of that in the context of what we're talking about here. Uh, One of the logical contradictions which is sometimes brought up by atheists is this question. Can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? Have you heard that one? Can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift, lift it? Actually, this is a nonsense question. We're trying to pit the power of God against the power of God. One person said it's like asking who would win in an arm wrestling context, contest between God and himself. Or, another person said it's similar to asking a bachelor what the name of his wife is. Or what color, what the color yellow smells like. See, those are irrational, illogical questions. Uh, So, if you're in a situation in a classroom where the uh, teacher wants to throw that kind of a question at you, Can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? I think that uh, such a question should be answered in accordance with Proverbs 26, 4, and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what does his folly deserve? Well, I'd say uh, absurd nonsense should be exposed as absurd nonsense. A good answer to this question would be, you're quite foolish to ask such a self-contradictory question. God does not indulge in nonsense. Because of his very nature, God does not indulge in nonsense. Well, that's one category of things, those things that are logically logical contradictions. And really, that see, it's, it goes back really to the main thing. God does not do something against his nature. And uh, it's against his nature to indulge in nonsense. So he's not going to make a rock that's too heavy for him to lift. <clears throat> it's a nonsense statement. So, omnipotence, which is all power, is not the ability to do anything even irrationally conceivable, like making square circles or round squares. It's rather the ability of God to do anything consistent with his nature, anything consistent with his nature and his desire. His omnipotence means that God is able to do all his holy will. Okay? So I haven't lost anybody, have I? We just kind of went off into a 
You know, when you start talking about irrational things, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> but now we're getting back to the, the rational, okay? <clears throat> God's, God is able to do all he desires to do. And all that he desires to do will be in accordance with his nature. He doesn't ever act in ways inconsistent with his attributes, with his character. So, God can do all things in accordance with his holy, divine nature, which are consistent with his will. And you, we could look at a lot of verses on that. But I do want to point out some things here. <clears throat> I think, uh, let's see, seven. Point out seven things God cannot do. Seven things God cannot do. Now, some of these are overlap a little bit, and there'd probably be more, <clears throat> but these are seven that I think are worth considering. First of all, God cannot cease to exist. He is the everlasting God. That's part of his nature. He cannot cease to exist. He has no beginning and no end. <clears throat> um, that's part of what makes God, God. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. <clears throat> so God can't cease to exist. God can't die. Uh, you know, despite the, back in the, I think the 60s it was, that uh, Time magazine had the cover on it and said God is dead. Well, it had been a good one to consign to the fire. But you know right off, it's foolishness. <clears throat> God cannot cease to exist. God cannot die. God cannot stop being God. God will always be God. <clears throat> so that's the first thing. The second is, God cannot lie. Let's turn to Hebrews 6.18. <clears throat> Well, I better start with 17. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. Anyway, it's impossible for God to lie. And then if you turn to Titus... <coughs> Chapter 1, verse 2. Well, again, just to get the flow here. Verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is in accordance with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. So there, you got it about as clear as you can say can say it. God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. <clears throat> God is truth, so he cannot lie. The Lord's standard of right and wrong doesn't change. He's consistent. He's always consistent with the truth. That's the reason we have moral absolutes, because God defines them by his very nature. 
and he lives up to them always, all the time. <clears throat> he can't change his word. It's forever settled in heaven. He can't break his unconditional promises. Uh, for instance, uh, God cannot flood the entire earth again. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not capable of covering the whole earth with water again. That's not the problem. What I mean is he's promised not to do it. So it's impossible for God to flood the whole earth again because he said he wouldn't. Uh, So God cannot lie. Number three. This one probably should have been number two because it's really uh, the fact that he cannot lie is under this one, actually. God cannot sin. Talking about things God can't do. God cannot sin. He's holy. That means he's totally set apart from sin. We're told that his eyes are too pure to look upon evil, and he can't tolerate wrong. It's part of his nature, you see. Uh, He cannot be tempted with evil. And since he cannot sin, this is another, this is kind of a subheading of this one, but it's... it's, uh, I think helpful to remember this. Since he cannot sin, God cannot say yes to all of your your prayers. Or mine. Since he cannot sin, God cannot say yes to to all of our prayers. Because sometimes our prayers are selfish and go against what God knows to be the ultimate good for us and for his universe. So... It's impossible for God to say yes to all of our prayers. If we prayed perfectly according to his will, he could, but we don't. Well, okay. Number four. God cannot learn anything new. That's because he's omniscient. He already knows everything. He's all-knowing. Someone who knows everything obviously can't learn anything. Isn't that right? Now, some people think they're like that. But they aren't. God is. He knows the end from the beginning. Even before he created anything, God knew what would happen. He knows everything about everything, past, present, and future. So God's not going to learn anything new. That also means he's not going to forget anything. And he's never fooled about anything. So, God can't learn anything new. Next, God cannot be wrong. Now, wrong, I'm not talking morally wrong here. I'm talking that he can't make a mistake. God can't, cannot, it's impossible talking about things that are impossible for God. He cannot make a mistake. He created everything. He knows everything. And he knows everything about everything that he created. And since he's good and therefore only chooses what is good and right and pure, he's not going to be mistaken about anything. He's perfect in all his ways. Number six, God cannot change. It's impossible for God to change. He's immutable. 
talk about something that's mutable, that means you can mutate it, you can change it. But God is immutable. <clears throat> this is part of his character. Um, well, Malachi, we should look it up, I suppose, we just to establish it. Malachi <clears throat> three six. This actually covers two two of them. <clears throat> Malachi, last book in the Old Testament, <clears throat> three and verse six. For I the Lord do not change, therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. So, I do not change. It's impossible for God to change. He's immutable. Uh, maybe one from the New Testament here. James chapter, or chapter 1, verse 17. <clears throat> James 1, 17. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift comes down from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation. What's that mean? If there's no variation, that means he doesn't vary from himself. He never changes. Or shifting shadow. So he's a God in, which, in whom there is no variation. <clears throat> so those are six things, and I'm sure there are others. <clears throat> But the one I really want to get to, and the one that really came uh, from my uh, coming across that verse related to Christ's prayer in Gethsemane, is this last one. And I, I really consider this the most amazing impossibility. That's why I've saved it till the last. It is not possible, and it was not possible put it that way, it was not possible for God to remove the terrible cup of suffering from his beloved son. That's what Jesus prayed. Let's turn back to this <clears throat> account in Mark. Mark chapter 14. Since we're going to spend most time on this one, let's just read this uh, section again, starting with verse 32. Mark 14, verse 32. Then they came to the place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and, to begin, and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell on the ground, fell to the ground, and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he, and he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee, Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. <clears throat> so I say 
that it was not possible for God to remove the terrible cup of suffering from his beloved son. Because of his holy nature, God could not redeem mankind without bringing unimaginable torment and agony and pain and sorrow upon his perfect, sinless, co-equal, co-eternal Son. Now, we're talking about things here we can't imagine. Things beyond our comprehension are being spoken of. Just in that, just in verse 36, when he prays that prayer, <clears throat> Jesus said his soul was deeply grieved to the point of death. We're told in another gospel, the gospel according to Luke, that he was in agony and he sweat and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground <clears throat> let's turn to that luke chapter 22 Stated a little bit different here. Verse 42. Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but thine be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. We have no idea what was going on in the heart and mind of Christ. I mean, we we have a few things to go by. We know that his, he was grieved to the point of death. But what really was transpiring here is beyond our comprehension. Never was a prayer like this prayer. Never. The curse of God was about to come upon the Son of God. This one who had always dwelt at the Father's side, always done the Father's will, always delighted the Father's heart, but now the wrath of God was about to be poured out upon him. And it was not possible for God to save anyone if he saved his son from this cup of wrath. We're talking about things that are not possible for God. It was not possible for God to save anyone if he didn't pour out this wrath upon his son.
And here you see Christ pouring out his soul unto death in prayer. Just as we do not know what Christ went through on the cross, neither do we know what he was going through here in the Garden of Gethsemane. We have no idea the extent of what was taking place here. I found this out today as I was studying, and it seemed significant, so I want to share it with you. The name Gethsemane means oil press, oil press. And I think it was no accident that this was the place that Christ was praying. Let me just explain a little about this oil press, how olive oil is made. The process used to extract olive oil was a laborious one. Whole olives were put into a a circular stone basin in which a millstone sat. A donkey or other animal was then harnessed to the millstone and walked in a circle, rolling a stone, stone over the olives and cracking them. The cracked olives were scooped up in a bar and put into burlap bags, which were then stacked beneath a stone column called a Gethsemane. The enormous weight forced the precious oil to drip from the fruit into grooves and on, into a pit at the base of, of the Gethsemane <clears throat> from which it was collected. So I say I think it was no accident this is where Christ was praying. I think there's great symbolism here. He went out to the Garden of the Olive Press, the Garden of Gethsemane. He fell to the ground and prayed and began to experience the weight of what was going to be laid upon him. That weight was so incredibly heavy that it squeezed out of him his own blood, great drops of blood. Spurgeon says this, You will notice that Christ not only sweat blood, but it was great drops of blood. They not only coated the surface of his skin and were absorbed by his garments, but the drops even fell down to the ground. He was a man of good health, only about 30 years of age, yet the mental pressure arising from our Lord's agony forced the pores of his body to sweat great drops of blood. How tremendous, oh how tremendous, must have been the weight of sin that it could crush out of our Savior great drops of blood. He was in the olive garden, you see, the garden of the olive press. Another commentator says it this way, We shall never know exactly what this cup was from which Jesus shrank in such horror. Certainly, it was more than physical suffering. We may say that it was the agony, it was the agony to his sinless soul of being made sin and exposed to the divine judgment of sin, of tasting in all its bitterness that death which is the wages of sin. 
There is something beyond the range of human experience altogether. Well, this was something beyond the range of human experience altogether. Since he alone was sinless, he was truly pouring out his soul unto death as he prayed. But the point I'm trying to make is that it was impossible for God to save anyone if Christ had not been smitten of God and afflicted. It was God's holy will. You see, God can do all things consistent with his holy will. And that's why Jesus ends that prayer, Yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. The victory of the cross was, in fact, won in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Olive Press. And then another commentator said this, Man's arch enemy, he's talking about Satan, brought sin and death into the world by asserting his will against God's. Jesus brought salvation by submitting his will to God. Acceptance of the will of God is always victory, but self-will inevitably leads to defeat. So there are some things that are impossible for God. So I'll close by just reemphasizing this. It, it's not possible for God to save you or me except through the work of Christ. There's no other way. If it were possible for anyone to be saved without Christ drinking this terrible cup, surely God would have done it that way. But he didn't. There was no other way. It was not possible. And it's not possible for you or I to be saved apart from coming to Christ with the attitude that Christ had. Not my will, but thine be done. It's not possible. You can talk about the love of God all you want, but there's no way, unless you come to God through Christ, the only way he's provided, and say, thy will be done. It's not possible. Well, we've just walked around on the edges of the depths of what's in just this short prayer, Abba, Father. All things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. Let's pray.
Father, I just feel like we're unworthy to even read these words. And I'm certainly unworthy to speak on them. And yet we're so glad they were prayed. And we're thankful that you've made a way through your Son to bring people like us to yourself. And we ask that you would help us each day to take that prayer upon our lips. Not my will, but thine be done. Forgive us when we failed and, and help us not to fail. We're thankful that Christ didn't fail in this great hour of agony and sorrow. We're thankful that all things that you desire to do will be done. We're thankful for your holy righteous, loving character, and that you always act according to your character. We're thankful that you never change, that you never do wrong, that you never sin, that you never lie, that you always keep your promises. Help us to rest in you, trust in you, walk with you, and continually look to you as the shepherd and guardian of our souls. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> or maybe someone would have a song. 161 in the Redemption. When I survey the wondrous cross. <clears throat>